So let's stand together. Let's read these few verses, and we'll see what God has for us today. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. But they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Lord, help us today. As we consider what you desire for us to hear from this text, Lord, you have... Um, spoken, you have breathed out your word, you have used Mark and in, in Peter in the recording of this gospel for our benefit. And Lord, now allow it to shape us, to fashion us, and allow me, Lord, to be a faithful mouthpiece to your text, that you would be honored and glorified, and Lord, your people would grow. And Lord, those who may not know you uh, would, would see you as the great God and Savior that you are. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, teaching and preaching on the subject of money in the context of the church is a topic that is both difficult for the pastor as well as uncomfortable for the parishioner. Now, if you're visiting with us today, please understand this. Uh, We don't often talk about finances. Uh, We let the text speak, and if the text deals with that, we will deal with that text. We just happen to be in this text because this is what is next in the Gospel of Mark. But this subject is difficult and uncomfortable for us. It's difficult as a pastor because as a pastor, I run the risk of being perceived as being self-serving because we all know that the contributions to the church help to pay for the salaries of the pastor as well as the ministries of the church that are going on. And so there can certainly be some question as to, okay, why are we talking about money? I don't know if you noticed this week, but a pretty well-known televangelist by the name of Jesse Duplantis um, had a video on um, YouTube, and it was on Facebook, and he said, well, he's basically appealing for contributions for a new DeSalt Falcon 7X jet, um, and he is trying to raise $54 million, and here's what he said, I really believe that if Jesus was physically present on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding on a donkey. Think about it, he'd be in an airplane preaching the gospel around the world. And now that, that kind of falls into the what would Jesus do category, which is a whole can of worms, right? But here's the thing. It, it is true. In our society, among the, the greater church, there have been countless examples of pastors or church leaders who've been abusive, heavy-handed, manipulative, or unethical in their plea for financial contributions. Agreed? So there's always this tendency to say, oh, this is kind of of awkward, this is kind of difficult as a pastor. Yet, at the same time, uh, from the perspective of the parishioner, for those who are in attendance, there is this kind of uncomfortableness because we all know that our finances are a reflection of our heart. And any instruction, any challenge, any encouragement in the area of finances or giving potentially brings shame and guilt and possibly a posture of resistance rather than one of humility. If we're honest, this is an area where all faithful believers really wish they could do better. They would want to give more. Now, having said all that, we come to this text because it is a text that is next in the flow of Mark. And we're duty-bound then to address it, to consider it, 
and to apply it. And so to that end, I must be a faithful pastor to preach the whole counsel of God, no matter how difficult the topic is. And you, as followers of Christ, are responsible to receive the word gladly, with humility and gratitude, but also as Bereans. In other words, you need to consider what is being said and then go home and and sort through the scriptures to determine whether or not what is said is actually true. And as a result of that, seek to apply those principles and the truth of God's word to your habits of giving. Now, I want to remind you that as teaching pastor at Gateway, that I am also um, responsible to apply these principles to myself, just like these principles are to apply to you. I'm duty-bound to consider them as you are. I am responsible to look at my habits of giving, my habits of behavior, just like you are. In fact, church leadership doesn't remove this kind of responsibility. Church leadership actually has a requirement of this kind of responsibility. Let me just give you some phrases from the pastoral epistles. This, this person, a leadership, an elder, is a man who is above approach, a good steward, not a lover of money, not greedy for gain. These are all aspects of, of the kind of character that person should have. So please understand, although this topic, or this passage talks about money, there are no gateway giving police, right? We're not going to knock on your door and say, you didn't give last Sunday. What's up with that? Now, we might knock on your door, but you don't have to fear us challenging you in that visit about your giving. The only place where it's going to come up is if you are being brought before the people or being considered for the position or the office of elder. And honestly, this is how it would play out in the context that we have right now. Ed, myself, Albert, and JD will be sitting in a room. An XYZ person who's been considered uh, as an elder, um, I or one of the other elders will look at JD and say, JD, because he's the only one who knows the finances as, as far as the elders are concerned. JD, is there any reason that we should question this person's giving? And he would simply either shake his head yes or shake his head no. And that's the extent of it. We're not putting charts and figures and putting it in print and all that kind of stuff. We just want to know this person is faithful in this area. That's the only time in the context of our church where this is going to be something that is brought up. You with me there? Right? Now, we all recognize that there's a responsibility to be faithful in our giving, but we want to be careful that we're not being heavy-handed and manipulative in it because I don't think that's the tone of Scripture at all. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about money and how it should be handled. And like I said, most people don't like to hear what the Bible has to say about it, but we must pay attention and take notice because Jesus has been very clear that where your treasure is, fill in the blank, there will your heart be also. All right? So this morning, I would like for us to consider this, that Jesus, the Son of God, gives the disciples and us a lesson on sacrificial giving. Now, notice we have already taken the offering. So at the end of the service, I'm not going to have you pull out your, 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 your checkbooks, even if you have those in your possession. I don't know, most people don't have those anymore. Um, the point here isn't to conjure up money from you. The point here is to give you tools to help you be faithful to God as a disciple of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, gives the disciples and us a lesson on sacrificial giving. Now, notice, first of all, the tone of this passage. The tone here is not condemning, but commending and instructing. Okay? And then also notice the characters that are being brought up here. You have the rich people and you have the poor widow. This is not a pitting of the rich against the poor, but Jesus is identifying something here that are assumptions among the rich and that is something unique about this particular poor widow. In Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, you find her spiritual sister who is there giving a lavish gift. Hers is is large and costly, but this widow's gift is small and worth almost nothing. And yet, both of them are examples of this this lavish, sacrificial 
giving. And when it comes down to it, it's not about the, the money, it's about the heart. So let's jump in now to this text and let's consider what Jesus is teaching us and what God is revealing to us in this passage, right? This widow is to be contrasted, first of all, with some of the events and discussions that had just taken place in Jesus' ministry before coming to Jerusalem and even while in the temple. Let me just give you a couple of things. The, the, The scribes were told exploited the widows of their money by taking advantage of their vulnerability and trusting uh, desperation, and, and that was what we read earlier in, in, in Mark's gospel, it's just a few verses back. This was one of the things that Jesus does attack, so to speak, the scribes for, because they took advantage of these ladies who were leaning on them for help. Then, of course, a little bit earlier in the, the gospel, we, we find this encounter that Jesus has with this rich young man. And he's asking, what, what do I need to have to, you know, to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, go sell your possessions. And he's like, well, I can't do that. And so he goes away sorrowful. This, 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 this money, these possessions just grab him, and he cannot let them go. But this woman here, in this woman, we find someone who loved God with all her heart, her soul, and her mind and her strength that she's willing to give and to give just joyfully and graciously and completely. First of all, then, I want you to notice what I'm calling Jesus's or Christ's omniscience, Christ's omniscience. Jesus knows what we give. If you read the story, you see that he is aware of what we give. And, and he is one who is omniscient. He sees and knows Everything. Now, I'm going to make some comments about that, but I want you to notice that this text doesn't necessarily portray his omniscience, but it is describing something that he sees, but it is true that he is omniscient in our context that is important. Notice it says in verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Let's just consider the, the setting here. We are now in the court of women, and this is where everyone was allowed to gather, and this is where every pilgrim would come during Pentecost to give their offering to the temple. In this location, there were 13 shofar um, receptacles, and they were there, and there were these boxes at the bottom of them, and so when people would line up, They would go to a particular one of them because different ones had different kind of things that they were collecting money for in the temple. And the people would go to a particular shofar and they would pour their money in. Now what's important then is that not only could you watch people do this, but you could also get a sense of how much they were giving because you could hear what was going on as they poured the coins into these shofar receptacles, okay? So what I'm saying here is Jesus has positioned himself in a place where he's watching, but he can also hear. And so he's aware of what people are bringing. He's aware of who's there and how they are giving. So notice then, secondly, the seeing. It says, and he watched the people putting money in the offering box. My, my kids... Uh, growing up, we, we, we were a Disney family. Some of you probably are too. Maybe not so much today. I don't know. But one of, the, one of the, the great Disney or Pixar movies that I think is great is Monsters, Inc. You guys watch Monsters, Inc.? There, there, there's no political undertones in it all. All right? Um, uh, you love the characters. And one of the, one of the characters or one of the statements in there that we have used in our parenting is Ross's interaction with Wazowski. Because she says to him, I'm watching you. I'm always watching you. And we remind our kids, not only are we watching them, although we're limited, God is always watching them. Now here's the reality, friends. And this is where I wanted to to kind of draw this, uh, this under the umbrella of Christ's omniscience. The fact that Jesus sees and knows all that we do can be a daunting thing, right? Now, we we consider his attribute of being omniscient, meaning he knows everything, he sees everything, and that can cause us to be totally fearful. 
because we know our sinful inclinations. But then when you are in difficulty, you are thankful. Why? Because he knows. <laughs> he is aware of it. You're not alone. He is able to see what's going on. You are not alone. He is very much with you. And so on one side, you're fearful. On the other side, you're joyful. On one side, you're panicking. On the other side, you're comforted. And so we respond to his omniscience with both shame and terror and confidence and gratitude. And when it comes to our giving practices, he knows what we give. Now, friends, that should help us. That should encourage us. We'll see why in just a minute. Notice, secondly, Christ's observation, his observation. This is what he sees in us, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. I just want to note here a couple of things. The practice of giving to God's sanctuary was established in the days and weeks after God brought his children out of Egypt. And I want us to read a passage of scripture that describes that. And this is found in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 8. He commands the people to bring gifts to be used in the construction of the tabernacle, this first sanctuary. Listen to what he says. Catch what he says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall, receive, you shall receive the contribution for me. Did you catch that? And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twilled linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, uh, goat skins, uh, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, Splices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, uh, for the ephod and for the breast uh, piece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now what kind of giving is going on here? It's giving that God is requesting. It is giving that is motivated by the heart. It is giving to God ultimately for his sanctuary. So here we have this kind of foundational principle going on. Built on that then would be the second thing, and that would be the giving that resulted, we typically understand as tithing. So in the Old Testament, there was this tithing that took place, and people would bring their tithes to the, 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 the temple in particular, and the word tithe simply means one-tenth, Okay. And if you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verses 22 and following, we would find out that because Israel was a, an agrarian society, um, they would be bringing things like grain and new wine and oil and the firstborn of their herds and their flocks. Right? Now, if the journey was long, they were allowed to sell those things and then bring the money to the temple and then give it to the temple and to the treasury, okay? And so I, I'm laying all this down here to help us understand the habit that we are about to see as this text unfolds. Where does it come from? These monies then are given into the treasury, and these gifts are used to support the priests and the Levites. Also, they're to help uh, to take care of the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. This all happened through God's temple and the carrying out of those responsibilities then came from the, the contributions of the people um, into those receptacles. So, so now in the temple, uh, we have these same practices still going on. And the people were coming as pilgrims during this time of Pentecost and coming with their gifts into the temple. 
So the, the, the bottom line here is this. What we see here, what we're reading in this text is not something unusual, but the, the normal part of the practices of the day that flowed out of, of God's instructions to his people years before. These monies then would provide for the clergy, they would provide for the needs of the temple sacrifices, they would provide for the needs of the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. All right, so there was a reason for what was going on here. And that might be a lot to take in here, but it's foundational, I think, to help us understand what's going on. So now, let's turn our attention to, to, uh, to the fact that um, what Jesus saw. As he sat down opposite the treasury, he could see all the people lining up, waiting to make their contributions. And the first group to catch his eye are those who are rich. So he saw, first of all, the rich. And I want you to notice here, as, the, as they pick up their large bags, as they drop them into, the, uh, into these shofar receptacles, this, this, these mountains of coins were rattling and clanking into the treasure. And you can understand how human nature would kick in in that kind of a context, right? Here I'm coming to make my offering. I'm kind of, you know, gonna, gonna give my gift here to the temple, and it's like, you know, I'm gonna make this kind of last. I'm gonna make sure that all the coins rattle around as much as possible, and people can be seen, and maybe there's a certain way we do it, and that kind of stuff, right? And you know, you go to other countries, you go to other contexts. Have you ever been to Africa and you see the kind of giving that goes on there? In Africa, in many contexts, I don't know what it's like there in, in, in Kenya, but I know in some contexts, churches, people will line up in the middle, and they will come up the middle, and sometimes they're dancing along the way, and they're doing stuff, and they're not doing it necessarily to bring attention to themselves, they're doing it as a matter of celebration and worship. However, that can quickly turn into, this is all about me and how much I'm giving. We go to Bolivia, in, in Matias' church, um, what they do for their offering, they don't pass plates, at, at a certain time, people come from their seats and there's a box in the front and they give their box, they give their money into that box. And so you're getting up, people are seeing you contribute, okay? So it's different contexts do different things. What we have here then are these people gathered and the rich people in particular coming and there's many rich that are coming and they're putting their money into the treasury here through these shofar receptacles. But here's the point and, and it's up there on the screen for you. They give a lot because they have a lot to give. Now, I just want you to hold on to that thought. Then Jesus turns his attention to a poor widow. See, these rich people are lined up. They're giving, and this poor widow is next in line. And you can just imagine her getting ready to go up there, all these people dressed in their fine clothes and stuff, and here she is. She's got you know, regular kind of normal stuff on. She's poor, so she's probably not dressed the greatest. Probably clothes are kind of a little bit ragged, um, and she's ready to step up. And this is, of course, if you're watching, this is the time you kind of say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little drink of my, my bottled water here, right? The show is pausing. The rich people are not there. It's, just, it's, just, it's, it's a widow. She's a poor person. This is not something to watch. This is a time to pull out your phone and, and check your text. Right? This, is, this is a time where you just kind of like say, I'm going to take a break. But, but you'd be missing something really important. In, in human terms, yes, this might be a time to take a break. But in spiritual terms, there's something wonderful and beautiful and powerful about what is about to happen. And it says here, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, Mark, in writing this, is considering his audience, which would be those who are in Rome. And so he makes, makes it a point to explain what these, uh, these contributions are. Our text says two small copper coins, which makes a penny. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that the word penny has a number by it. Not all of them do, but many of them do. Does your Bible have a little number by it? So if you read down the little note, it will say something along this, these lines. Two, or Greek two lepta, which make a... Uh, Quadrantes, a quadrantes, Latin quadrants, was a Roman coin uh, worth about 164th of a denarius, which was a day's wage for a laborer. Do you have that written there? All right. Now, that's there. It's really helpful, and it's really important for us to understand. Okay? 
trying to explain the value of what she's putting in there. So I took all those kind of ratios that are explained there, and I thought, okay, in today's terms, what would that look like? If the minimum wage were $11 an hour, because she probably is not working a, you know, she's not working at, at Google, all right? She's, she's, she's poor. She's a widow, right? So she's probably got, you know, minimum wage, if that, right? And a full day's work would be about $88 if minimum wage is $11 an hour. Divide that by 64 and you get $1.40. And divide that by two and you have 70 cents. You have two coins, each worth 70 cents. Can't buy much for 70 cents. I mean, you can't even go to Starbucks and buy a coffee for 70 cents. Not even a shot of espresso, you can't even get that. You used to, but you can't anymore, right? It's, it's not much. It's just a, a small amount. But notice, and this is what Jesus sees, she gives all she has even though she has very little. Now, as many have observed, this is probably the most famous donation in all of history. John Broaddus, pastor from many years ago here in the States, um, on one Sunday morning, while the offering was being taken, walked with the ushers and watched as people gave their offering. Some people were really uncomfortable. Some people were really annoyed. I think you probably would think that was kind of weird. Um, I was tempted to do that this morning, but, <laughs> you know, I, I still want to be loved, all right? Um, but but he, 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 after doing that, got up into the pulpit and opened to this particular text. And he said something like this, you're upset with me, but remember that Jesus goes up and down the aisles with every usher and sees every cent. Now, pushing home, Jesus knows what we give, whether it's a bag full of money, whether it's just $1.40. He knows. He knows. He's aware. He sees it. Now, not only does he know what we give, and this is where we start getting now to the, the main meat of the text and the application of the text, Jesus knows why we give. Jesus saw this as a teaching moment for his disciples. It was an opportunity to press home some of the things that had been, uh, he had been teaching them as they were doing ministry together. Look at verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, that, that, listen, that, that's, all right, this is a teaching moment, guys. Come here. I want to I I show you this. All right, that's the kind of thing. Sit down, listen, observe, all right? And he says, truly, I say to you. In other words, this is important. You need to pay attention. This is significant. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. So while everyone else is checking their emails and getting their drink and maybe running off to the bathroom, what they missed was something very, very significant. This, this poor widow giving all that she had. So first of all, I want you to notice this. The rich are a picture of comfortable giving. It says in verse 44, he says, for, for they all, speaking about the rich, contributed out of their abundance. Now the point here is that they gave, yes, out of their abundance. In other words, they gave um, what they could afford. What they gave didn't really affect them much. It may have been a lot of money in people's eyes, but it really was comfortable giving. Yeah, I can handle that. Not a problem. It may seem like a lot. It may be impressive to those who are watching. But when it comes down to it, in proportion to what they had, it really isn't a lot. Now, in the history of the world, there have been many philanthropists who have given millions and billions 
to various charities and organizations, humanitarian needs, good stuff for the most part. Here are a few from a more recent history. Some people you probably know. This comes from The Independent, a newspaper out of the UK. And it lists 20 contemporary philanthropists. I didn't want to take you through all 20. Um, Because you probably don't know who most of those are. But there was a few that that kind of hit me. Number one, and this is not necessarily an order, except there is kind of an ascending thing, okay? Mark Zuckerberg. You guys know who Mark Zuckerberg is? He's from this area, I think. Um, CEO of Facebook. He's given $1.6 billion over the course of his life. Anyone here given $1.6 billion? All right, I just, all right, I see the hand. Good, good. Yeah, you're locked in. That's a, a gift of faith, I think. Um, his net worth is $40.7 billion, at least at that point in time. And they come up with this generosity index where they take the net worth and they divide it by the, the amount that was given over the course of his life. And he has a generosity index of 4%. Now, 1.6 billion is a lot of money to be given, right? But in the context of his net worth, it's 4%. Still a lot of money, but in the broad scheme of things, yeah, he can afford it. Mark, or Michael Bloomberg, CEO of Bloomberg Media Corp. Lifetime donations of 3 billion. Oh, okay, he's up Zuckerberg. His net worth is $37 billion, and so we have a generosity index of 8%, a little better. Still, uh, listen, with $37 billion, once you buy your couple of million dollar home and a nice car or two to, to go in there, you're still left with a lot of money. So $3 billion is really not that much in the grand scheme of things. Bill Gates, I think you guys know who he is. Lifetime donations, $27 billion. Net worth, $84 billion. His generosity index is 32%. Listen, after you get to a couple of million, though, it, I mean, really, how much more do you really need, right? You get the point there. You get to a point where it's just like, it just becomes money, money, money. There's just tons of it. Well, maybe not here in California, you're saying. All right, I understand. So his generosity index was 32%. That's pretty impressive. When you think about it, it's pretty impressive in contemporary terms. Now, this poor widow, she is the CEO of nothing. And she has given 100% of what she had. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Her generosity index is through the roof. She's given all she has. The rich, they're a picture of comfortable giving. The widow here is a picture of sacrificial giving. Someone who cannot afford to give. And I know your minds are thinking, okay, Pastor Rod, where are you going with this? Let's just, let's just press on through here, all right? You'll still love me at the end, I promise. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. A little later, she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So the rich had given comfortably out of their lavish abundance. It was impressive giving, to be sure, but it really didn't cost them much. She had given sacrificially out of her poverty, it was far more impressive because she had given everything that she had. Now some, I think somewhat rightly might say um, to this widow, and I think this might be, you know, this is how people, even within the body of Christ, would kind of process things. You might say, hey, hey listen, if they could be there, and hey, listen, you, you have two coins that you want to give, but they're really not worth that much. I mean, it's 70 cents and 70 cents, $1.40, um, listen, God doesn't really need your money. I mean, he can, he can get it done without that $1.40, right? I mean, you're, you're a poor widow. The monies that are being collected are being collected for people like you. 
You're the, supposed to be the recipient here, not the contributor. Wouldn't God at least want you to be wise and keep one coin for yourself? Sir, put one in and, and keep one for yourself? That seems to be wise. But the object of God's love, this widow, the very one God does call his people to look out for, gives out of love that is wholly committed to God. And it is one of the most beautiful acts of worship ever given to God. Now, interestingly enough, in the Bali translation, this text is idiomatically rendered this way. But she, being wholly destitute, has cast in all her money and has shaken out her house. And what that means in that context is that there is nothing left. I mean, everything in the house has been shaken out. Everything that is worth anything has been put into this receptacle. I try to relate a little bit more to this, so I came up with the the teenage version of this, and it would be this. She gave all of her French fries, every last one of them, even the dark, crunchy ones stuck in the bottom. I mean, shaking that tub out, giving it all. Listen, the point here is this, that that, that she gave everything, and I think it's really important to see here at the end, all she had to live on. In other words, in giving, she was left with what? Nothing. And friends, when it comes down to it, this text really isn't about money at all, is it? Money is simply the vehicle in this text that reveals the heart of this widow. Now, here we come to our concluding thoughts. You're like, man, it's early. But I still have another seven pages to go. All right, so um, just, I, just want you to, I just want you to know that, that although we're dealing with a few verses of Scripture, that it, that it, it, it's pregnant with instruction for us. And we're going to, first of all, just think about uh, what is sacrificial giving uh, in particular, as it relates to money. That's the place we're going to begin. And we're going to continue on with some, some other thoughts that I think flow out of this text that are helpful. We'll spend a lion's share um, in this particular area, okay? So, money and sacrificial giving. I'm going to use some words here to describe what this looks like, but the reality is all these words kind of overlap one another and just are all aspects of of this desire that God has for us to be faithful in our giving, to be sacrificial givers. First of all, this kind of giving is an act of stewardship. It's an act of stewardship. God isn't looking for some of your finances. He's wanting control of all of them. You're like, I didn't choose the right day to come visit Gateway Bible Church. No, you did. That doesn't mean that you're giving 100% of your finances away. What it simply means is that you recognize that all of what you have has come from God. And that all you do with what you have is a stewardship of what God has entrusted to you. It is all his. He gave it to you. And therefore, you have a responsibility to be a steward of what he has given you. So this act of stewardship is simply a disciple of Christ coming to the place where they submit all of their possessions to Christ. It all belongs to him and therefore you're committed to handling all you have with his guidance and his principles in mind. He's entrusted to me all that I have, and now I must use it, I must distribute it, I must uh, spend it and, and give it wisely and according to his will. It is first and foremost an act of stewardship. You with me so far? You're like, shoo, okay. I thought Pastor Rob was going to say, I've got I've to give it all just like this. Well, you do. You give it all under this category of saying, this is all God's. I'm a steward of what he's given me. Secondly, it's an act of obedience. Giving, and in particular, giving to the Lord's work is taught, modeled, and explained throughout Scripture. And of course, our text is just one of the many examples. But you can't read God's Word and come to the conclusion that I'm not required to give. Giving is one of those things that God has called his people to do, both Old and New Testament. Now, we mentioned 
earlier this, this concept of tithing. In the Old Testament, the command to give comes in the form of the command to tithe or give 10% of your flock, of your grain, of your monies. So this principle of tithing is foundational in the Jewish context. But before you want to identify yourself as a tithing Christian, I want to remind you that there are three tithes that God gives instructions for. Two of them are to be given every year. One of them every three years. So if you want to pride yourself in saying, I'm going to be like a tither, just like they were in the Old Testament, then you're going to have to commit to 23.3 something percent of your gross income to be that tither. You understand that? Because you give two tithes every year, that's 20%, plus one tithe every three years, right? You with me so far? All right? That's, that's the system. That's how it was functioning in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have what's called grace giving. The emphasis is not on the specific amount, but on giving God as he has prospered you. So, for example, if you're given a salary of 100000 then a good place to land the plane in your giving is to give 10% of that, 10000 as an offering to the Lord. You say, that's a lot of money. Yeah. God's gift to you of 100000 is a lot of money, isn't it? It's all, how, it's all how you present it. It's all how you consider it. If you're given 10000 from your parents because they want to bless you, then take 10% of that blessing, in other words, 1000 and give it to the Lord. If you have a piece of property in Northern California that has been an investment, you paid 20000 for it in 1990, now you're going to sell it for 100000 That means that you've made a profit of 80000 and when you give as God has prospered you, you're automatically thinking, awesome. I now have 8000 that I can give to the Lord. See, it's, it's, very, it's very simple. It's, it's a concept. But on the front end of it, if you're going into things saying, hey, listen, here's, here's how God would want me to give if I'm going to use that figure. Now, again, the issue here, the point here is not so much on the 10%. That's just kind of like a guiding principle. The central issue is the, the prosperity or the, the heart attitude that wants to give as God has prospered you. So giving like this should be a Christian's natural tendency and practice. It should be a settled reality. So if you have children and they're like, hey, you know what, grandma gave me $20. As a parent, how do you reinforce these principles? I know the kids are like, don't say it, Pastor. Don't, don't say it. And you say, hey, you know what? Give $2 to the Lord. Just develop the habit early that this is all God's money and all he's asking for is for you to give out of that prosperity. Just so, just develop the habit early. Now listen, there are some people who give far more than that amount. They have a percentage that is different than maybe what your percentage is. Some people have, a, have one that's lower and there's going to have to be application of wisdom to determine exactly what that looks like. But the point is, this is, this is a, 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 a sacrificial giving that is an act of stewardship, but it's also an act of obedience, which leads us then into the next thing. It is also then an act of worship. You see, the gift that we're giving, when the offering plate comes in the context of church, there may be some specific projects that are being collected for. And I know we've mentioned to you, you know, there's something going on in Bolivia, or there's helping out Matthias and, and, his, and his new bride, and, and also there's the general fund of the church. You're not necessarily giving for that particular project, although that's what's motivating you to give. You know it's going to go to help that. But more important than that, is that your giving is an act of worship to God. Did you notice in that passage, even in, in the Old Testament there, Jesus, or God is saying, I want them to make their contributions to me. But was, what was he referring to? Ultimately, the sanctuary. But he viewed those contributions as being given to him. 
In other words, when we come and we give, we are giving as an act of worship to God. That is the first and foremost attitude and, and, and focus and, and uh, priority in our giving. The project is secondary. The project might be something we're trying to meet a need for, but ultimately we're giving it to God. And so what happens then is that in that giving, we're, re- we're releasing and we're not kind of like saying, well, what benefit will I get if I give this money? In other words, let's just say this, you know, we're, we're, we're building, hopefully building a youth group and kind of raising some people up and we want to, we want to get a, you know, get a vehicle for traveling those kids around. And so we're going to collect money for a vehicle. Well, you know, you've got like seven kids. You're like, well, this would be a great project to give to Ward. Why? Because my kids will benefit from it. Now that may be true, but your gift is not for your own selfish benefit. Your gift is primarily an act of worship to God. You see the difference there? These are issues that I can't jump in in and parse because these are issues of the heart. And these are issues that you then have to settle before God. That's why I say, we don't have any giving police here. But there is one who is watching. Who knows? And more important than what he sees, as far as the act of giving, he sees the motivation of the heart in the giving. And that is far more important to him. Now, we give as an act of worship to Almighty God, but it's not to be done to be seen by men, but it is certainly done in the clear sight of God. We're not giving to get, yet we do realize that in sowing, there will always be a what? A reaping. Okay, these are all heart issues, right? It's an act of worship. Next, it's an act of generosity. Generosity recognizes that what we have is only because God has given it to us, so that's that settled fact. So generosity means that we have a a godly but loose grip on the things that he has given us. It means then that we have a willingness to use what he has given us to help and serve others in and through the church and then to those who are on the outside. So generosity isn't foolish, but it is the fruit of a Christ-centered Stewardship. If you were to go, you know, downtown Oakland with a wad of $20 and just say to everyone passing by, here's $20, here's $20, here's $20, someone might say, boy, you're generous. And God would say, you're foolish. Because generosity is also to be done wisely. So there are things that go along with our giving. That means that this generosity is done in a way that is prayerful, that is careful, that is wise, and that is also abundant, eager to serve God. So in your, in your giving, is it generous? Do you have a loose grip on what God has given you? And are you willing to release it if God is directing you to do so for his glory? Finally, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Now think through this with me. I'm, I'm sure, just like if it were you or me, that the poor widow that Jesus saw pondered many thoughts in her heart as she slowly approached the temple to give her gift. She might have been saying things like, I wonder where I'm going to get my next meal from. Or, this is the last of my money but there are needs that are far greater than mine and God will take care of me. Or something like, man, these shoes are really worn out. I've had these for years and I could really use a newer pair, but I'll be okay. God will provide. Or, God, I wish I could give you more. You know my heart and you will take care of me just like you've always done. Now, friends, I just, those are just some ideas that came to my mind because I know as, as we come and we give, we're thinking about we got this bill to pay, we got this debt that's going on, and what does God want me to do? And now, friends, I, again, I, I want to bring wisdom into this context. If you have not gotten yourself into the habit of giving because you have so much debt or your outflows seem to be larger than your inflows, 
God doesn't want you to be foolish and to neglect those responsibilities. He does want you to be wise. So I think he would want you to step back and maybe with some help, take a, a, a look at your giving practices and habits. Take a look at your debt so that you can be in a place where you're changing some of your patterns of behavior So any changes that take place in your giving to God shouldn't just come because somehow a pastor is manipulating or motivating you. It should come from the outflow of God's word, the Holy Spirit working on your heart, wisdom being applied to say we want to give more. How can we do it? How can we do it wisely, properly, and for the glory of God? And friends, this is the beginning of our sacrificial giving. This is one way where we, where we test ourselves to determine whether we are truly sacrificial givers. Now, some people say, all right, Pastor, can you, can you be practical? This happens kind of in a counseling setting, and I want to be practical today. I want to be helpful for you. So I'm going to bring you into my world and help you think through how it is that I kind of consider what we do with, with giving um, in, in the Phillips home, how we process. It's really, really simple, Okay. First of all, we give at least 10% of our gross salary or work income to the church's general fund, okay? Just saying this is a paradigm that we work from based on biblical truth, right? It's not gospel truth, but this is how we've applied it. If this can be a help to you, then you can at least take it home, chew on it a little bit. We give 10% of our gross. So we believe, yes, we are giving money to Caesar, but we're to give God what is God's. It's all his, Caesar gets a portion of it, okay? We just believe we base it on the gross. We give that to the general fund. Why the general fund? Because the church is the primary vehicle through which God accomplishes his ministry. We give it to the place where we have committed to be serving, to be used by God. Any other monies we receive, in other words, gifts from others or financial gains that we may have received from a variety of places or from time to time, Um, we'll do the following. First, we'll consider the needs of our church. And what we'll do then is we'll kind of go through kind of a a little process. Are there any immediate needs, such as shortfalls in the budget that needs boosting, or are there mission endeavors that could use some financial help? We'll also consider, are there families or individuals in the context of our church who need help? And we would give them some things either through the offering plate or through personal giving to help those people, to help those that are part of the body of Christ who have certain particular needs, all right? So this is how we're doing it. Let me just remind you, right? Salary, gross, 10%, that goes into um, general fund. Anything else that we get above and beyond that, um, that then is used, goes through a kind of a process where we're considering it, and some of that contribution may not necessarily go through any church, it may actually go directly to an individual. We're not so concerned about getting a tax write-off as we are being used by God to meet the needs of people. Does that make sense? Right? And then after that, then we'll look outside the church. There may be some missionaries we know, or there might be some missions organizations, or there might be some other people in the context where there are some needs that need some support and some help. And like I said, there's no gateway police here I'm simply trying to help you think through this in a practical way by giving you at least a picture of what we do. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, look at me. I'm just saying this question comes up a lot. How do you actually do this? How do you actually process this? Years ago, and hear this, years ago, especially you young couples, my wife and I sat down and said, what are we going to do? And we came up with this paradigm. And once you figured out what it is you're going to do, you just you function based on that paradigm. But one of the hardest things that happens with young people, and I hear in California, it's tough, I tell you, um, because both couples or both individuals ha- you know, typically have to work. That's hard. But you've got you to just determine what you're going to do before you make some major decisions, because once you're locked into those major decisions, your finances are tied. And so these are things that we decided we want to we focus on early. Okay, let's move on. That's the, 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 the money and sacrificial giving. That's important. That's helpful. That is in the text. But there's something more that's in the text. And this is why Jesus is speaking to the disciples. There's discipleship and sacrificial giving. 
Now let's remember that Jesus is here teaching his disciples. And yes, he confronts the religious leaders in the temple because of the ways in which they were coming at him. He was modeling, he was teaching, but in the process of doing that, he's also instructing his disciples. We can go to chapter 8, where Peter answers the question of Jesus rightly, you know, uh, who, you know, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right answer. But remember, Peter had a wrong understanding of what that answer meant. And so Jesus had to instruct. He had to give counsel. He had to give wisdom to them. Chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus with Peter, James, and John comes down the mountain. The other disciples have been out serving trying to uh, meet the needs of people, are failing in doing it, what does Jesus do? He brings them together and he teaches them. Throughout Mark's gospel and throughout Jesus' ministry, his primary purpose is to glorify God by ultimately going to the cross, but in doing that is to raise up a group of men that are the disciples who will continue to carry on ministry when he's gone. And so part of what we see here is not so much instruction for us as it is instruction for these disciples. There's something going on here that Jesus wants them to see. So Jesus is here teaching his disciples a very important principle about what is most important. He's saying to them, listen, it isn't just what you do that is important, but why you are doing it. He's saying to them, your heart motive is far more important to me than your deeds. That's really important for us to hear with the, the, the way Christian culture is moving more toward deeds than it is what's going on in the heart. Deeds can flow out of an empty, sinful heart. But I want your heart first, he's saying, and that these deeds then will flow out of a heart that is focused on me, that is submitted to me. It's the heart that matters to God. In your discipleship, God wants your heart first. So for example, if you're struggling with your Bible reading, you're saying, well, I just can't do it, I don't know what to do, I just get struggled you know, here with reading this passage, or should I read here? And It may actually come down to the fact that you just don't desire to do it which is really a heart issue. It's not a habit issue, it's a heart issue. And so the heart needs to be affected and changed so that the Bible reading becomes then what you desire to do, what you long to do. And friends, again, in that context, using that illustration, there may be times when life is busy and you're exhausted, you're tired from all the things you've been doing, and as a result of that, you just, man, I'm just having a hard time reading my Bible. Not necessarily talking about that. Those are physical things, but we're talking here about heart issues. Now listen to one of the well-known passages in Scripture that will help us here, and that is Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know it very well. Paul says, this is a transitional text, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's just spent 11 chapters laying out the gospel. He says, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that's, that's no small matter, is it? And then he goes on and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you see, discipleship takes work. But it is a work that flows out of the gospel, the mercies of God here. So we're called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Friends, that is an all-in sacrifice. It's not a, an appeal to say, well, give me your hand and give me your feet. He's saying, I want it all. I want all of you. I want that body sacrifice as, a, as an act of worship. But he's also saying, I want you to present your minds by transforming them through the renewal. That's another way of saying, allow your minds, the cognitive part of your heart or your inner man to be saturated and fashioned by the word of God. When that is done, in God's way, then your life choices will reflect that heart orientation and that body sacrifice. So in a nutshell, 
Spiritual giving and discipleship call for a wholehearted humility and submission to Christ through his word. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, this is not something you just do a little bit of. Discipleship is your whole reality. This is, this is what you're called to. It's a total commitment. And that's why there's a cost to discipleship. That's why in many cultures, I mean, we're living in culture today where it's not that big of a deal, but in some cultures, when you step out and you say, I am now a Christian, I mean, they may be out to kill you. My friend um, in Lebanon says they stopped doing public baptisms because in the context of Lebanon, when you step out of a, a kind of a Muslim context, you identify yourself as a believer, you're putting yourself in harm's way. And so they do them privately. They don't broadcast them. They don't say, you know, they don't put on Facebook, come to so-and-so's baptism. Because you don't want them to come to so-and-so's baptism because they're going to come with an agenda and it's not going to be pretty. So that's one of the things that they've changed. Now there's a final application here and I think ultimately this is where things are going and this is the point, I would say the, 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 the focal point of, of all that Jesus is saying is that there's the atonement and sacrifice or sacrificial giving. I just think about this, what's happening here. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. He's now come into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he is just a few days away from his arrest and crucifixion. He has said through Mark's gospel, this is why I am, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I am going to be taken. I'm going to be flogged. I'm gonna be beaten. I'm gonna be crucified. And I'm going to rise the third day. This is, this is what he's come to do. So the woman gives God all of her heart, soul, and substance. And Jesus is now about to make an even greater sacrifice. He loosed his grip on heaven and humbled himself by taking upon himself the form of a man. That's what Philippians tells us, chapter 2. And now, even in this time of, of teaching, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he will soon make the greatest sacrificial gift of all time. He will give his life and he'll die on behalf of mankind by bearing the wrath of God on his shoulders. Now hear this. Please understand that it isn't just that Jesus died as a hero taking our place on the cross. Heroes die all around the world. They could be military heroes, soldiers who give their lives to protect either their, their battalion or their troop or their company as well as the country that they love. It could be police officers in the line of duty who place themselves in harm's way and sometimes will take a bullet and die for the protection of others. It could be a mother or a father or friends who are willing to give their lives for their children or for those that they love or simply just for fellow man. But it isn't just that Jesus died. And this is one of the things that is important. This is why we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute. It's just not that Jesus died and it somehow was an example for us to see you just give your life. That's what God's calling. No, it's more than that. What Jesus did is far more than simply die. It's admirable that he died. It was part of the process of what was going on, but it's also how he died and why he died. He died bearing the wrath of God for our sins. So it wasn't just death. There was something else going on. God is pouring out his wrath on the shoulders of Jesus. And in doing that, he's taking my place. He is a substitute. And he is receiving the wrath that I deserve. So it's not just simple death. There's something far greater going on here. He was that sacrifice once for all. He died that you and I might live not just here, but for eternity. And how does, how does Mark, or how does Jesus express that, and how does Mark reveal that? Turn back to chapter 10, chapter 10, and I want you to notice verse 45. It's kind of a summary statement, but it gives us a picture in the context of what's going on as to what Jesus is doing, or ultimately comes to do. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a big theological term. He, he, he ransoms us. He, he pays the debt by his shed blood on the cross. So his death, he's pregnant with meaning. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He is our reconciler. He is the one who makes atonement for our sins, who, who appeases the wrath of God. He is that sacrifice once for all. Friends, this is true sacrificial giving. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He didn't just give a little bit of himself. He gave all of himself. Friends, do we see Jesus afresh? Do we see him anew? Do we see him with greater appreciation? And is our discipleship then gonna flow out of that? And is our giving, whether it be money, whether it be talents, or whether it be our time, is it all gonna be a reflection that comes out of the gospel to say, these are all things that I need to steward and to do it for God's glory. Lord, help us today to ponder these truths. These lessons from a poor widow. Well, we have... We have really nothing to offer you except what you give us. You've given us voices, and so with those voices, we praise you. You've given us eyes and ears, so Lord, we want to learn, we want to see life through, the, through your lens and to absorb your truth to help us understand how to live and who you are and why we are to do what we're doing. Lord, you've given us resources, you've given us tools, you've given us talents. But Lord, that is all because of what you have done for us. But Lord, even above and beyond all those things, you've given us this gift of eternal life through your sacrifice on the cross. We are amazed. We are humbled. But Lord, we're thankful. And Lord, our hearts are full of gratitude this morning for what you have done for us. May we live our lives out of that and to do it, Lord, for your glory as faithful stewards of what you've given us. Now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to celebrate what, the fact that you gave your body, the fact that you shed your blood, you were that sacrifice once for all, may we not only reflect on what you did on the cross, but may, may we also reflect on what you have done in us as you drew us to yourself, Lord, that, that moment, those times and early in our Christian walk where, we, where our, our, our life was refreshed by this gospel. And Lord, as you welcomed us into your family, as you, you brought new life, may we be reminded, Lord, of those realities and then to once again to live out of them for your glory. We ask now in your precious holy name, amen.